My Bible reads like this. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Sounds like a crucifixion, doesn't it? The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. You ever had a time in your life when you questioned the authenticity of the Bible and you wondered whether or not it was real? Whether or not the whole package, you know? There's like three honest people here this morning, okay? A few more. A time when you thought, what if they made all that up? How do I know that I can believe it? I asked my wife that question earlier this week because I had those same doubts in my teenage years. I looked at the Bible and thought, you know, what if this is just somebody's fabrication? Is it possible that somebody just kind of created it out of thin air? So I asked Lori that, did you ever have that period of time? And she said, yeah, in my 20s, a few times, you know, not to the point where you just chuck it away and walk away from it, but the, the times when you look at it and say, how real is this? Well, I'm going to apologize in advance this morning because what you're about to experience is going to feel like a classroom setting. Because the reality is that many of us come to God's Word at some point in our life probably everyone, and wonder, can I really believe this? Is it really real? It requires us to understand that we need a high view of God, a very, very high view of God. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you're familiar with A.W. Tozer, but um, he said this. You should read his writings if you never have before. He said, a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 problems. Tozer's right. See, our, really our biggest problem on planet Earth is, is not our problems, Because our God is greater than our problems. Our God is greater than our greatest need. Our greatest problem is our small view of God. And when we look at God's Word, we're tempted to wonder whether or not He could have actually orchestrated all this. Well, what I'm about to do this morning is give you a high view of God by examining the authenticity of God's Word. So this is going to require you to feel like you're a little bit more in a classroom than a sermon, different than anything you probably experienced before in a typical church setting. 
It's going to be a little more scholarly. Now, before your eyes glaze over, okay, um, just hear me out. For, for each of you, there's some category of interest this morning, whether you're really into archaeology or you're into science or you're just into the authenticity of God's Word. I think there's something here that's going to speak to you. So let me start out this way. Did you know that nine out of ten Americans own a Bible? Ninety percent. Eight out of ten Americans say they're Christian. You live among a group of people whom 80% say that they're Christian. Now, with that thought in mind, let me um, take you to a study that was done. Um, Dr. Stephen Prothero, who is uh, at Boston University, did a study five years ago, 2007. I guess that'd be six years ago. And in this study, he provided lots of fodder for James uh, Jay Leno on The Tonight Show. Uh, because, you know, Jay Leno likes to do this man-on-the-street interview stuff. Well, he used Dr. Stephen Prothero's material, and he went out and he started interviewing people. This is some of the findings that Stephen Prothero found in his study about America and the Bible. Half of all adult Americans can't name one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Can't come up with it, okay? More than 50% can't name the Bible's first book. Two-thirds of Americans cannot name Jesus as the one who gave the Sermon on the Mount. Majority of people believe that the Bible says Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Here's the last one I'll give you. One out of ten Americans believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. (laughs) Somebody's saying, you mean she wasn't? Okay. Eight out of ten Americans own a Bible. Eight out of ten Americans say they're Christian. Nine out of ten own a Bible. Sounds like maybe they're not reading it, or they don't believe it, or it's a family Bible sitting on the coffee table and they never bother to open it. Here's the last one I want to share with you, just kind of in fodder before we jump into this material. This is the saddest one for me. 44% of all adults, American adults, think that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truth. Ooh. Okay, that's hard. I don't know your background, where you're coming from this morning, but just hear me out of why the Bible is different than those, okay? Most people approach history somewhat uncritically. You and I, when we went to school as kids, we were given a book by our teachers. If we were homeschooled, we were given a history book by our parents. And when we sat down with a history book, we, we accepted it because what we read, we were told was accurate and it was authoritative. And we didn't question it because history books place absolutely no moral demand on us. It doesn't require anything from us. If your Bible is only a history book, it's not threatening. It doesn't require anything from us. But because the Bible teaches absolute truth, it teaches about your salvation and your destiny, that causes people to become very uncomfortable. And upon recognizing that morality is called for, people typically will begin questioning the reliability of the book, saying, wait, does it really say that? Can you trust it? Or sometimes it sounds like this, did God really say? See, that echoes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Satan approached Eve in the garden and said, did God really say Why? Because if God's word can be discredited, then the requirements and therefore its outcomes are rendered negligible if it's inauthentic. Many people have attempted to do that. Let me tell you about one. His name is William Ramsay. 
Uh, William Ramsay, what you need to know about him is uh, the guy is extremely bright. Dr. William Ramsay, professor at Oxford. Nine earned doctorates in his lifetime. Spoke 26 languages. How are you doing with English? Okay. This guy was raised in a home in Scotland by which his dad taught him. His dad, a very successful businessman. His dad told him that you cannot trust the Bible, that it is historically inaccurate, it is not authentic, and therefore should be disregarded. So because Dr. William Ramsay became an archaeologist, as a matter of fact, the world's foremost archaeologist in his lifetime, he decided to begin attacking the book of Luke and the book of Acts because both of those were written by one author, Luke. And his dad had told him, if you ever want to discredit the Bible and you want to take out the legs underneath the stool and watch it all come crumbling down, spend your life on investigating the book of Luke or the book of Acts. So Dr. William Ramsay started out from Oxford University where he held three fellowship chairs and decided to dedicate his life in the Middle East doing archaeological digs. And indeed, he expected, as a result of his research, to prove the author of Acts absolutely, hopelessly inaccurate. Why? Because Acts and Luke alone, the two books together, list 32 different cities that were unknown to mankind in the 1800s. People had never heard of the 32 that he refers to in his writings. 54 different countries, nine different islands. So Dr. William Ramsay decided, I'm going to start out by just dissecting these different cities, these islands, these governors that are all mentioned in these writings and proving that they never existed. By the end of his lifetime, he had come to a conclusion that it was absolutely accurate to the nth degree. As a matter of fact, I want you to see his quote on the screen. Dr. William Ramsay, who was knighted by the King of England in 1906, said this, You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they will stand to the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatments. He died believing that Luke was the greatest historian ever to walk on the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, he died a believer in Jesus Christ because he came to the conclusion that the preponderance of evidence was so overwhelming it could not possibly be refuted. He's just one of hundreds of thousands. We're not going to get into him this morning. What we're going to do very quickly is go through three things. Why is your Bible unique? Well, it's unique in continuity, it's unique in survival, and it's unique in prophecy. We'll get to prophecy as the last one. Imagine with me on this continuity issue that if you had 40 people, 40 distinct individuals whom you found from every range in life, from poverty to immense wealth, Every socioeconomic background, kings, paupers, statesmen, fishermen, poets, physicians, and you took those 40 individuals and you put them on planet Earth in three different continents. So let's understand where the Bible came from. It came from individuals living in the continent of Africa in what we today call Asia Minor or the Middle East and what we would also call today Europe. Take those 40 individuals and sprinkle them over the span of those three continents over a period of time of 1,600 years and tell them that they're going to write in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, in multiple forms, everything from poetry to history, everything from their personal observations about law and ethics and parables and biography. Those individuals ask them to put their observations down about their knowledge of God and the ultimate reality of the world 
Ask him to put it in writing. Would 40 individuals living over 1,600 years agree to the point where they all come to the same conclusion? Probably not. Apart from something supernatural. Because it wouldn't be natural for 40 individuals. If you don't believe me, just write something down here in 2013 and ask somebody in 3,613 to write in the same way that you agree today in this period of time. 1,600 years. And yet the biblical writers represent exactly that. Moses from Egypt. Daniel, Persia. Luke, a Gentile who's a doctor. Peter, a fisherman from Galilee. Paul, a Jew who's in Rome. Individuals spread all over the globe, 40 different authors, 66 books, yet with thematic harmony, all coming to the same conclusion with zero contradictions. Okay, let's leave continuity aside. Let's go to the uniqueness and survival. Compared with everything else on planet Earth in all the other ancient writings that have been gathered together, there's more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of ancient literature in your Bible this morning. We'll get back to that in just a minute. There were special rules by which the scribes took the copies of the Bible and transferred them over so that we would know that they're accurate today. Let me explain to you this uh, process. The Jews were so meticulous in writing down the words of God that when they began sitting in front of a piece of parchment on their stool, their supervisor required them to do something very specific. When they began, they first had to get up and go over to a basin of water, wash their hands, completely cleanse themselves, and then sit down in front of the parchment, pick up a quill, and then begin writing. And every time they came to the name God, Yehovah, they had to stop, put their quill down, walk back over to the basin, wash their hands again, come back to the parchment, pick up a second quill that was reserved just for God's name, Write down, Yahovah, set it down, walk back over to the basin, wash their hands again, and come back over and pick up the first quill. Can you imagine the poor guy who got the assignment of writing Genesis 1? In the beginning, God, oh man. Go back over, wash. You know that God's name comes up 12 times in the first 10 verses? Mackenzie said to me after sitting through the last night's service, she said, Dad, that poor guy's hands must have been all dried out. Never occurred to me, but I guess it's probably the case. They were extremely careful to copy God's words exactly. And they devised special methods to count the numbers in the words on a single line so that their supervisor at the end of the day of their work would come back and look at all the parallel paragraphs and panels that they had written, and he knew the numbers that were supposed to be in there. So he would count every letter and count every punctuation, and if it didn't match up, he took the paper and he threw it in the fire and told them to start over. We're talking with quill and ink. You're not sitting there typing it away. These guys poured their lifetime into being accurate. As a matter of fact, Dr. Bernard Rahm is a PhD from USC. He, he had this observation. He's not a believer in Christ, but he, he knew about the Bible. Look at this quote. The Jews preserved it as no other manuscript has ever been preserved. They kept tabs on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents. Whoever counted the letters, syllables, and words of Plato or Aristotle? That's a great question. They, they counted God's words because they knew it mattered. It was so critical to them to transfer it over accurately. 
Uh, so we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible. If you have your notes this morning, you want to pull those out so you can follow some of this along. But here's the three factors by which manuscripts of antiquity are measured. In today, and I don't just mean the Bible, I mean any ancient manuscript. These are the same three formulas that are always used in, in, in very general terms, the number of existing manuscripts. And so when you see the word manuscript, think handwritten. Manu meaning manually, and, and script, the, the, the word. So manuscript means handwritten. So the number of existing manuscripts, the dating of the manuscripts, and the quantity of the variation in the reproductions. Okay? So let's take on first the number. The Bible ranks first in the entire world with all the existing manuscript evidence. As a matter of fact, as you see on the screen, there's 5,300 Greek manuscripts. There are 10,000 Latin manuscripts. There are 9,300 other early versions, totaling 24,000 manuscripts of, of original composition. Now, that, that's the number factor. Let's go into the dating. These all fit together, and you'll understand why. In the New Testament, we'll just use that as our example this morning, the documents that you have from Matthew to Revelation, they were written sometime between 40 A.D., and 100 A.D., so a 60-year span of time on, on the longest measure. In antiquity, when you use other documents other than the Bible, the average composition, uh, the average time between the composition and the earliest copy is 1,000 years. The average gap between the New Testament original and a copy is only 70 years. Now, you'll understand why I'm saying that in just a moment. What I want you to see next on the screen is this issue of number three, the variant readings. In ancient literature, one of the most regarded works um, that people use today as a measuring rod is called the Iliad by Homer. And the Iliad, if you've watched the movie Troy, you're very familiar with the story. It's about the assault on Troy, and, and Homer wrote, wrote down what's known as a poetic story um, about what happened, and it happened in 800 B.C. And so Homer's Iliad is always held up as a measuring rod because it's extremely accurate, and it's used many times to measure other manuscripts against it. So what I want you to see on the screen is this little chart comparing Homer's Iliad to the New Testament. So here's your example. The Iliad was written somewhere around 800 B.C. Now, for a long period of time, there were no copies made of it. It was only an original form. People learned the story, they recited the story, and they told it over and over and over again. But eventually, around 300 B.C., somebody decided, you know what, we better start making copies of this so that it can be distributed. So in 300 B.C., the very first copy was produced 500 years later, and at that period of time, they began making copies, and there were 643 in total produced. There's a reason why I'm telling you all this. Now, in contrast to the New Testament, written between 40 and 70 A.D., the first copies were made around 125 A.D., a 55-year span. Now, we compare this 24,000 copies that I just showed you in the Greek and the Latin and other languages to Homer's Iliad, which was written in 643 copies. Here's why I tell you all that. Before your eyes glaze over, just hear me on this. Iliad, the Iliad contains 15,600 lines. Of those 15,600 lines, 764 are in question, meaning are they original to the original document? That means 5% of Homer's Iliad is raised as questionable. They're not sure, but that's raised as the highest standard, okay? Let's contrast that to the New Testament. The New Testament contains 20,000 lines. 
of those 20,000 lines, 40 are in question. That means one half of 1%. That's remarkable because that makes the Bible the highest uh, a document with, with the lowest amount of error, with the highest amount of lines being contrasted Homer's Iliad. That means it has 19 times more variance. So how do, how do we measure this out? Let me show you this on the screen. Here's an example of the error that I'm talking about when I say it has one half of 1%. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. See, the D is dropped off. Number two, Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Number three, Jesus Christ, extra S, the Savior of the whole world. What you find when you see individuals who take on the Bible and say it's full of errors, this is what they're talking about. Misspellings or the trading of words instead of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. So when scribes translated it and put it down on paper, sometimes they dropped an S, sometimes they dropped an I, or they added a D, or they dropped a D. Okay, so that's unique in continuity, unique in this dating system. Now let's talk about prophecy. I saved this for last because I find it to be the most fascinating. Let's use in modern times right now the greatest example here on planet Earth. I find it to be the nation of Israel, and I'll tell you why. I just want to explain this to you. Over a period of time in the Old Testament, God said through Moses, if you continue to rebel against me, and if you go a direction other than the direction I've told you to go, I will scatter you over the entire planet. You will cease to exist as a nation. Matter of fact, let me show you this on the screen. It comes from Moses, Deuteronomy 28. It says this, the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other, King James Version. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. So fast forward to the time when Jesus is on earth. And Jesus said to the people of Israel, if you will harden your heart and you will refuse the things that I'm sharing with you, your nation will cease to exist. That's Mark's version of what Jesus said, okay? He essentially said, you will be decimated. So Jesus dies, he's crucified, he's resurrected, he ascends to the Father, and in A.D. 70, Rome descends on Jerusalem. They put up with them as long as they possibly can, and they decimate Israel, and they cease to exist, and they're scattered all over planet Earth. So today, we would begin to think of a phrase that's familiar to us. We, we would use phrases like this in our modern culture. Um, African-American, German-American, Russian-American. We also use the phrase American Jew, Russian Jew, Chinese Jew. But have you ever heard anybody use the phrase Chinese Babylonian? or American Hittite, or German Philistine? Are you tracking with me? See, those nations which were powerful at one time rose to prominence on planet Earth. Babylon, the Philistines, the Hittites, and then they were decimated and they ceased to exist. Yet God said he would save the Jewish people in his word and that he would retain them and bring them back together one day. So this tiny fragment of the percentage of the human population, unprecedented in the history of the world, is scattered all over planet Earth, and they become known as American Jews, Chinese Jews, German Jews. 
And then in 1948, the most amazing thing happens. I came across this news headline yesterday. I was just looking through some of the images related to the Jews getting their land back. The state of Israel is born. I think I already gave you the year, 1948. Anybody remember the date? It happened in one day, May 14th, 1948. How is that remarkable, church? Here's why it's remarkable. Because God said in his word through Isaiah that not only will I scatter you, but I will bring you back. And Isaiah wrote this. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 66.8 says this. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? It's never happened until God's word said the timing is right. And so God, in one day, the state of Israel is born again. And today, we have the nation of Israel. See, it's inconceivable to me how any person can look at God's hand in history and say, no, you can't trust it. It's not believable. But let me take it one step further for you so you can see how it's unique in prophecy. Last one. If I told you, and I want to make sure I explain this very thoroughly because I don't think I explained it real well last night. If I told you that there was going to be an attack on New York City, I would have to explain what I meant by that. But let me use a biblical parallel for you, and I'm going to use New York City as an example. I'm not saying this prophetically, okay? I just want to make sure I explain this. I'm just going to put these questions or these statements for you up on the screen just as an example, all right? What if I told you and gave you this following prediction? Iran will destroy all but the island portion of New York City. That many nations will come against New York City. That debris from New York City will be thrown into the water to access Long Island. Well, let's get more specific than that. What if I said that New York City is going to be made bare and flat like the top of a rock? Getting very specific, isn't it? It's really drilling down. And then what if I said in number five, fishermen are going to one day spread their nets over the heap that was once New York City? And lastly, what if I said New York City will never be rebuilt? So let's translate that over to a biblical example now. Go back with me to the Old Testament. There was a nation, there was a city that was as great as New York City, known as the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And this city became so blasphemous in existence that God said, I'm going to decimate it off the face of the earth. It will cease to exist. It was a powerful, glorious city. Oh, no one believed that it was possible because it was so greatly fortified until a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, decided, I want what they have. And he took the entire Babylonian army all the way across the desert to the shore side of the Mediterranean Sea, and he laid siege to the city of Tyre, and he decimated it. But... He didn't extinguish the people. He allowed the people to live. And as they saw Nebuchadnezzar coming, they looked off their shoreline and they saw an island out in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea and decided, there's our escape. We'll get away from Nebuchadnezzar. So they set out in boats. They took their materials and possessions with them and they reconstructed the city of Tyre on an island. And people looked at the biblical prophecy about Tyre and said, well, it was obviously not completely accurate until another warrior came along by the name of Alexander the Great, who looked at that that island nation sitting off the coast and decided, I want what they have. 
and he took all of the debris of the city of Tyre and he literally threw it into the Mediterranean Sea and he built a highway all the way out to the island and he conquered the people of Tyre and decimated them so that they no longer exist today. Why do I share all that with you? Because archaeologists knew about this example from Ezekiel 26. Matter of fact, this is one archaeologist's report. Let me read it for you. He says this, The city of Tyre never regained the place she had previously held in the world. The larger part of the site of the once great city is now bare as the top of a rock, a place where the fishermen that still frequent the most the spot spread their nets to this very day. How does that match up with Ezekiel 26? Let me show you on the screen. It says this, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken it, says the Lord God. Is that specific enough for you? So your God is very detailed about these things in prophecy. Do you know that that's one of 1,500 prophecies in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled to the minutest detail? Okay, here's the last thing I'm going to share with you this morning, archaeological evidence. There's all kinds of it. Some of it's in your notes this morning. Uh, matter of fact, one I really encourage you to look up is the Codex Sinaiticus. It was, it's the world's oldest Bible, and it was discovered on Mount Sinai in a monastery in 330 A.D., and it, it, matter of fact, your notes say B.C., but that's not accurate. It's, it's A.D. And it contains a, a Greek version of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm just going to put this image for you on the screen because I found this kind of humorous. Remember I told you how careful the scribes were when they were transferring the Word of God from one page to another and they counted everything very, very cautiously? Well, apparently this particular scribe got his, um, his overseer to sign off on it because he had completed the work and it became part of the Codex Sinaiticus. And then apparently the guy said, okay, you're good, and he blew out his candle. And do you see the wax that sits over the top of the letters on there? Apparently he didn't tell his supervisor about that part because there's still wax on there. That's just one example. If you get a chance, it is fascinating to look up the Codex Synacticus. Here's the next one I'm going to drill down into a little bit, though, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm sure throughout your life you've heard it mentioned. What you see on the screen is the book of Isaiah. I know it's just kind of a blur. It's illegible because it's written in Hebrew. Here's what's remarkable about it. The Dead Sea Scrolls found in the Qumran Valley in 1947. They date back to 100 B.C. This scroll of Isaiah, when it was discovered by individuals in the 1940s in the Qumran Valley, and they rolled it open and they realized what they had, they began weeping over it. Here's why. If you take your Bible today and you open it up to the book of Isaiah and you put it side by side with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you will find it reads word for word, letter for letter, without error. Something that was written in 100 B.C. is the same in 2013. So when it says, by his stripes we are healed, he was bruised for our transgressions, he was pierced through. What was true then is true today. And scholars around the world recognize the authority and the authenticity of the Scriptures. Let me just give you a couple archaeologists who are not believers in Christ, but they recognize what you hold in your hands today. First one, Dr. Nelson Gluick, Ph.D. from USC. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been controverted and a single biblical reference. 
Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Dr. William Albright from Johns Hopkins, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. So you have to look at all these things and you say, okay, then what is the cause of unbelief? Why do people around the world take shots at the Bible? And why do my friends, why do my colleagues, why do my fellow students say that they absolutely can't trust it or they don't believe it? Here's why. Dr. Miller Burroughs, not a believer in Christ, but he said this from Yale, the excessive skepticism, skepticism stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. It's true. There's a predisposition against the supernatural. And it's revealed as people look at the Word of God. Where does that stem from in your day and age? Well, whether you know it or not, in the early 1800s, 200 years ago, the Bible came under enormous attack, especially against the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the reason why is that most scholars at that time believed it was not possible that a legal system could have existed like Moses writes about in the book of Leviticus. That that predates anything that the world had known in the way of legal systems until in the late 1800s they found what's known as the Code of Hammurabi. And they found that even 300 years before Moses there were legal systems in place, therefore refuting all the arguments that came against it. So individuals use logic to take shots against the Bible by using the Bible against itself. Here's just two as we close this morning. One comes from the book of Exodus 3.8. And I want you to see this one on the screen. Moses speaking, God said this, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Here's why this came under attack. And in 1906, it was refuted. You see that I have the name Hittite underlined because for generations, people believed there was no Hittite empire. It never existed. It's not possible. But in 1906, a massive archaeological dig in the Middle East revealed that not only did the Hittite people exist, it was one of the five greatest nations in antiquity one of the most powerful kingdoms to have ever existed. I want you to see this image on the screen. What you're about to look at is known as the Hittites' Lion's Gate. And this was the entrance to the Hittite Empire. It still exists today. You can go see it yourself. People now accept the fact that, wow, okay, well, he was right. In Exodus, all the way back at that period of time, there was a Hittite capital. Let's go one step further. Recently in your lifetime, there has been arguments about who authored the book of John. Now, we spent a long time. We spent over 50 weeks in the book of John examining it. So it actually better have been authored by John if John says it was authored by him. But until 1998, scholars around the world said it was inaccurate. Its historical details could not be proven. Here's why. John 5.1 says this. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. You notice what's underlined in that statement, five porticos. Archaeologists around the world, scholars around the world, historians around the world said, there is no city that has ever existed in the Roman Empire that had more than four porticos. So therefore, John is inaccurate. It cannot be trusted until 1998, and you'll see this image on the screen. Count them, one, two, three, four, five porticos were discovered at Bethesda. 
and they had to rewrite the books again. Because time after time, the archaeologists come to this conclusive evidence and say, okay, I guess we were wrong on that one. I want you to understand what we're looking at here is not an exhaustive list. It was just very brief for you to understand the authenticity of God's Word. But here's my conviction. I don't believe God's Word because of what archaeology says. I believe it because God said it to be true. Is that true for you this morning? So we believe it because God said, my word will not return to me void. God said, my word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, this is really, really critical that we do look at this, and you're going to wonder, why did we spend time on this this morning? Let me sum it up for you. If the Bible were historically unreliable, and if it were inaccurate, we'd have to take the next step and consider, is it theologically reliable? That when it says Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, and ascend to the Father. Can you believe that? Well, according to what we're looking at here, God's word has never failed. It's always true, and God said, I don't lie. So look with me at 1 Peter 1.21. It says this, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's a huge statement, church. Spoke from God. God. So it's not just a history book. It's about morality. It's about your eternal destiny. It's about how you live your life today. Because we live in a period of time, as we'll see on the screen, 2 Peter 2.1, there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So why spend time on this? Why take 35 minutes and not do a sermon, but do more what feels like a classroom? Because you live in a day and age when 44% of the people that you live around say the Quran and the Book of Mormon and the Bible, they're all equal. They're all on the same spiritual plane. When God's Word says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through me, Jesus' statement. What do you do with that when God's Word declares it to be true? Romans 16, 15, 4 says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The Bible stands alone. Did you know that? Completely alone. What you hold in your hands today Most sales in the history of the world. Not that that matters a whole lot, right? Most examined in the history of the world. Most criticized. Most burned. Because it's not a history book. Because it's authoritative. And God says within this, you'll find the words of life. So that really comes home for us when Jesus said to us last week, we saw about this truth of abiding in him. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be done for you. See, it's hard to abide in something you don't believe in. But if you know that you know that you know, this is inerrant. It's the word of the living God and it brings life to your soul. That's something you can take to your friends and to your neighborhood and to your coworkers and say, here's how I know it to be true.
So here's what I'm just going to ask you to do with me in closing this morning. Would you just pray with me? And here's what I want to do in prayer. I just want to thank God for what he's given us. Would you do that with me? Let's pray together. Father, the the room is unusually silent. And it's at times like this when it's so easy to be overwhelmed with numbers and facts and archaeological evidence and totally miss the greatness of who you are. God, that we would have a high view of you. That you are so great, you can orchestrate all these things. It's not beyond your grasp, even though it's beyond ours. Thank you, Father, for sprinkling 40 authors over three continents. I thank you for scientists. I thank you for scholars. I thank you for archaeologists who dedicate their life to doing this kind of research that we can look at it in this day and age and and have our faith confirmed. But beyond that, Father, to know that your word also says that you love us so much that you sent your son for us. And no one can disprove that. Father, because we know we've experienced renewed life. Remind us of these things as we go out this week. We just go out with a grateful heart, thanking you for what you show us in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.